This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. Visit our website at iFlyVABeach.com to learn more about our group events to include leadership development, team building, and family fun. Welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast series with U.S. Navy Special Operations veteran, CEO, and hockey fanatic, Bob Pizzini. Bob discusses leadership, success, failure, defining moments, and hard lessons learned with guests who are intentional in their approach to leadership. Leadership is a perishable skill. Use it or lose it. In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. If you've listened to the show before, you know that I love to have leadership discussions with leaders who are influential in, in their field, and in today's case, somebody who's influential in global politics and global stability. My guest today, Colonel Gennady Kovalenko of the Ukrainian Air Force. And before I read uh, the Colonel's bio, I'm just going to give him a quick chance to say hello. Welcome to the show, Colonel. Uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you for having me here. And uh, uh, I will try my best uh, to explain and to answer as many questions as I can. Thank you. Colonel Gennady Kovalenko is currently serving as a staff officer at the Supreme Allied Commander Transformation SACT headquarters, Norfolk, Virginia. He graduated from the Karakiv Air Force Military Institute in 1996 and the National Defense Academy of Ukraine in 2005. He completed the Joint Command and General Staff course at the Baltic Defense College in 2004, as well as graduated from the Royal College of Defense Studies in 2014 in the United Kingdom. In 2015, Colonel Kovalenko achieved his MA in International Security and Strategy at King's College London and completed his scholarship at George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies in 2018. Since July 2020, he has been accomplishing his professional doctorate program at the Cardiff Metropolitan University, UK. In 2022, he graduated from the McCain Global Leadership Program. He is a non-resident fellow of the Institute of Innovation and Knowledge Exchange in the United Kingdom. Colonel Kovalenko has been serving in various positions in the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, head of NATO and the EU Section Plans and Policy Department. And we're going to get into that because Ukraine is not formally part of NATO yet Colonel Kovalenko is serving in that capacity. From the beginning of the Russian-Ukrainian armed conflict, he deployed at the operation area in different capacities. In addition, he was responsible for coordinating international support and assistance with the framework of the Multinational Joint Commission of Military Cooperation and Defense Reform. Wow, that's a lot, but I really want to take the time to read all that because the topic that we're talking about today is significant in terms of geopolitical stability. And you are at the center of that as a representative of the Ukraine and certainly here 
in this NATO ACT position. I, I would like to start, if you don't mind, with your role with NATO. Ukraine is not formally part of NATO, yet you're serving in this position. Can you tell our listeners how that came to be and what your role is? Absolutely. <clears throat> it's pretty much clear that uh, Ukraine is not NATO member, or at least Ukraine is not yet NATO member. At the same time, uh, I'm serving within the NATO environment as a staff officer. I have necessary security clearance, and I'm working in the, with my colleagues uh, back in the Allied Commander Transformation Building. And uh, uh, my position is just ensuring NATO that uh, Ukraine is serious about joining NATO one sunny day, and we are getting ready step by step uh, for the NATO membership. More than that, I'm double-headed in the ACT, uh, so I'm, I'm working um, as the partner uh, national liaison representative, along with uh, my Austrian and uh, Austrian colleague and officer from, from Switzerland. So, and I have been serving in the ACT last three years and a half. Okay, so you've been serving in NATO ACT since before the invasion, is that correct? Yes, I came here in August 2019, but uh, let me let me be clear that if we think that war between Russia and Ukraine started in 2014, or if we think that uh, conflict emerged in February 2022, we are wrong. We have been waging war against Russia last 400 years. So did it start, you said 2014, I think? Yep. Okay, and was that the invasion of the Crimean Peninsula? Yes, it was uh, It was annexation, illegal annexation of Crimea Peninsula and in igniting the uh, military conflict in Donbass. Let's go back. So, so that kind of takes us to where we are. Let's go back a little bit and just get to know Gennady Kovalenko a little bit more. In our discussion previously, you said that your mother, I believe, is of Russian descent. And your father is Ukrainian? Yes. Okay. And with that bloodline, what can you share with our listeners regarding the thinking of the Russian people and this war? Yeah, I was, uh, I'm was. i lucky actually to have uh, half Russian blood, let's say, and I can understand their evil mindset better probably. Uh, so as I, uh, as I said, my mother is Russian and I tried to kill that half in my in myself since war started. But speaking about Russian Federation and their um, thinking, uh, you know, many experts saying that uh, Russia is struggling with the communist uh, past or communist uh, history. Uh, I wouldn't uh, uh, agree with that. I suggest that Russia is struggling with imperialism. They have imperial thinking. And if you listen, Mr. Putin, uh, since he became president of Russian Federation in 2000, he never ever called Ukraine a um, country or state or just simply Ukraine. The best way he called uh, my country is unfriendly territories. Unfriendly territories uh, from the very beginning. Was he, was he planting the seeds for warfare and invasion at that time? So, um, again, um, I like operating with the facts. One of the facts, when Mr. Putin was speaking at the Munich Security Conference ages ago, he said that for him, the biggest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century was uh, not the First World War, not the Second World War. The biggest geopolitical disaster for Mr. Putin in 20th century was dissolution or collapse of the Soviet Union. As simple as that. What he is doing right now, he is collecting territories back to the Soviet Union. And we in Ukraine pretty much sober that if Ukraine will fail, which never happened, next countries will be, will be the Baltics, uh, Moldova and Georgia. 
So given that in your resume, you studied in the Baltic Republic in, in, uh, in, was it in Lithuania or Latvia? That was Baltic Defense College is Tartu, Estonia. Estonia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've had the uh, great honor and privilege of visiting Estonia and operating with the Estonian military uh, back in my special operations days. Given what you just said, that this first invasion of Ukraine will lead to further territorial aggression by Russia right now on previous Soviet states, uh, will it go beyond that? Absolutely. So if you see the, um, as I said, I was at the Baltic Defense College in Tartu, Estonia, but more than that, I was lucky to be there uh, 2003-2004. And in year 2004, Baltic states joined NATO and the European Union. So uh, I was lucky to uh, study their experience, how they adopted their uh, system, uh, defense planning system, defense educational system to the NATO standards. Um, and uh, uh, I suggest that my experience from that time, there a lot of help and assistance uh, came from the Nordic European countries, uh, like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland. They assisted the Baltic states at the very beginning of their independence. Pretty, mu pretty much the same thing that we need back in Ukraine right now. So we need international assistance in order to... Uh, Let's uh, to resist Russian aggression and to have a victory, and to uh, let's say to to preserve our independence, uh, territorial integrity, and sovereignty. As you know, Poland is part of NATO. The Ukraine is not currently part of NATO. Uh, do you see a, an assault on NATO countries, or is this is is Putin's? invasion of Ukraine, is it is it more symbolic or more meaningful in terms of waging a proxy war, if you will, with NATO countries? I don't think that uh, Mr. Putin himself, brave enough, uh, or Russia itself is ready to fight with the uh, with NATO. Uh, by the way, they, they are fighting with NATO. They declared uh, right now that uh, Ukraine is too junior, you know, too, uh, too uh, less important for Russia. And uh, since half a year ago, Russia is saying they change rhetorics. So they are not waging war against Ukraine. They are waging war against NATO and against collective West led by the United States. So I don't think that Putin will invade NATO country. At the same time, this instability or this crisis or war, Russian war against uh, Ukraine is wake up call for NATO and the European Union. And you know, uh, one of the biggest, uh, the, the wrongest assumption from Mr. Putin uh, was that like in 2014, NATO will be divided and the European Union will be divided uh, as it was during annexation of Crimea. But this, this time it was wrong. So NATO stay united, EU stay united. Sanctions were imposed just with the rocket speed. And at the same time, what we have right now, Putin was saying that he is not tolerate uh, expansion of NATO uh, to the to the east. At the same time, we have NATO, uh, we have Finland NATO member, and Sweden uh, soon to be NATO member. With uh, uh, Finland membership of NATO, I suggest that the uh, length of the border between Russia and NATO was doubled. So what he achieved so far, I mean, Mr. Putin, is absolutely opposite than he planned to. Yeah, opposite, absolutely opposite than what he planned. 
with that, what is the sentiment? I mean, the the Russian military from the beginning have been attacking residents, the neighborhoods, the residential areas across Ukraine. Uh, and this is this is egregious. This is a violation of G- Geneva Convention. This is uh, this is where uh, Putin can become designated as an international criminal. And and ultimately, this could result in an international criminal court. But what is, to the best of your knowledge, what is the sentiment of the Russian citizens uh, regarding the war, number one? But but are they aware that the Russian military is attacking the civilian infrastructure of the Ukraine? Uh, So uh, speaking about uh, Russian awareness about that, first of all, uh, let me explain uh, three main reasons. One, why Mr. Putin started this uh, conflict. The first reason he was uh, mis, okay, uh, he was misinformed about how uh, warm his troops will be welcomed back in Ukraine. So he was absolutely sure that the Russian troops in Ukraine will be met with hugs, smiles, and flowers. Thanks God, the generals who uh, informed or misinformed him about that, they are in jail now. But he still believes that uh, Russian troops are welcome in Ukraine, which is wrong. But that was the first reason. The second reason is Mr. Putin's level of support was decreasing because of the COVID and unpopular reform of the pension system back in Russia. And if you analyze the level of support in years 2020-2021, it was constantly decreasing. And invading uh, Ukraine and having this small victorious war uh, will help him to regain support from the people. Uh, we can we can uh, witness that throughout the history of the Soviet Union and Russia. Let's remember uh, Hungary in 1956, mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia in 1968, mm-hmm. uh, Chechnya in wars 1996-1999. Uh, the same happened in Georgia after annexation of territories of Georgia, the the support of the uh, Russian politicians were rocketing. And the same happened in 2014, when Russia annexed uh, Crimea, the level of support was rocketing. So that was the second reason of the invasion. The third reason of the invasion, ladies and gentlemen, just think about Ukrainian capacities and Ukrainian territory. We have 600,000 square kilometers. And we have about 42 million people. With this territory and this with this human resource, Russia will get the uh, strategic depth and will get additional capabilities and capacities. I would quote here as Bignil Bzuzinski, who wrote that book, um, The Great Chessboard. I've read that book. <laughs> and he mentioned that without Ukraine, ambitious of Russia to be empire is dead. As simple as that. So three reasons again. Rogue assumption, uh, level of support, and strategic depth of the Ukrainian territories and population. So with that uh, miscalculation across the board um, and and this apparent rebuilding of the Soviet Union in an attempt to further hedge against the West, and it's all going wrong. Nothing is going according to Putin's plan. Going back to the the territory of Ukraine and the landmass, the um the farmland the you know the 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 natural resources 
um, beyond farming, by the way, there's a lot of lot of other natural resources. There's the pipelines that run through Ukraine that I assume are are shut down. Are those pipelines still flowing? I don't know. I don't okay, know. okay, but um, but given this miscalculation, there's one last option for Putin, and that would be the nuclear option. Now, there's uh, several nuclear power plants uh, still and currently and still in operation in the Ukraine. How does, uh, uh, short from nuclear weapons, does nuclear energy play into this at all? Uh, first of all, we have been protecting our critical installations pretty much well. And I don't think that uh, he is that stupid to strike the nuclear power plants back uh, in Ukraine. Because, you know, in the current uh, environment, uh, it's not. It, it will not be only Ukrainians who will be suffering from that. It will be all Europe because of the wind and the, sure. you know, the, the, the and geographical position of Ukraine at the center of Europe. Sure, and Chernobyl kind of showed us that. Absolutely, yeah. Because from Chernobyl, that was the guys in Sweden who mm-hmm. were first to you know to detect something wrong with that with the with the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking about nuclear strikes, first of all, uh, I suggest that we should be sober about that uh, not uh, uh, not later than 30 years ago we used to live in a nuclear environment during the the cold war and i remember my time it was lessons every week in my secondary school how to deal with the after the nu- nuclear strike for example with, with this nbc uh, protections uh, key sure. you know, and this sure. methodology and to be brutally honest you know if you are not at the epicenter of the explosion and you following the orders and you have the protection kit, the choice of survivability is pretty much high. So let's be sober about that, but I don't think it will happen soon. Uh, one of the reasons for that as well, that uh, during the meeting in um, last autumn with his uh, Mr. Putin's counterparts from China and India, uh, I think that was some messages uh, preventing Mr. Putin from using uh, even tactical nuclear weapons. Yeah, well, that is very sobering to use your words, to say the least. And um, it would be good and welcome if China and other global players are trying to advise Putin uh, on on sensibility regarding uh, the potential for a strike and the troop structure. So right now, the Russian troops, the frontline troops, they seem unprepared, untrained, that they're they're not well trained, they're not well equipped, and they certainly don't seem to have Putin's intent at heart. So the Ukrainians are fighting and dying with every with every bit of their soul in their being. And the Russians just seem to be cannon fodder thrown at the front lines. War of attrition is probably not not the right way to describe this, but how would you just kind of describe the will of the Ukrainian Ukrainian fighters versus the will of the Russian fighters. Rob, I'm glad that uh, you mentioned the uh, level of readiness of Russian troops to fight. But the least thing that we should do is underestimate the Russian capacities and capabilities. So just be careful about that, I suggest, because there are good troops and bad troops, well-trained and not well-trained. Let me explain uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, Ukraine is waging war of necessity, where Russia is waging war of choice. And we are pretty much sober. So if Russia will stop striking, the uh, war will be ended. But if Ukraine will stop fighting, Ukraine will be finished. 
as simple as that. Uh, more, than that uh, more than that, I suggest that whatever papers we can sign right now, today or tomorrow, ceasefire agreement, you know, interim solution, peace agreement, it will be pretty much the same as uh, Neville Chamberlain said, peace for our time in uh, 1938. So it will be postponed war for our kids and our grandchildren. Speaking about differences in the capacities or training, don't forget, please, that Ukraine is fully mobilized. I am pretty much sure. So if the taxi drivers drivers will need to deliver munition to the front line, they will do that. Because for us, is everything or nothing. Uh, Russian intention, and we are pretty much sober about that, Russian intention is to wipe Ukraine out from the map, full stop. At the same time, again, back to question to the capacities and the uh, training, we were lucky. We were extremely lucky because in autumn, uh, in September 2014, uh, Americans approached us and said, guys, probably we'll be fighting. You will be in deep, stinky water fighting with the Russians. So we better start training. And we established American-Ukrainian training mission. In a couple of weeks, the Brits approached us and said, guys, we know the Americans doing training. We can support so to make long story short, when I left my country in uh, August 2019, uh, I left behind 86,000 Ukrainians trained uh, in the framework at that time was Joint Multinational Training Group Ukraine, where that, that was 12 countries who provided training for Ukraine at that time. More than that, speaking about training, uh, we are pretty much sober, as I said, that one sunny day we must rely on our own capacities for training. So we started in 2015, we started training the trainer programs, mm-hmm. uh, preparing our trainers. We have lessons learned. Let me wrap up with the training that uh, during last year, since war started in February 2022, uh, we have trained more than 30,000 Ukrainians abroad. And could you imagine that uh, Australia and New Zealand is providing trading for Ukrainians back in the UK. Right? That's incredible. It is. You know, sometimes, yeah, very often I'm uh, comparing this uh, training during the wartime. It's like you're trying to fix your engine of airplane when you, you are airborne, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's absolutely necessary for the uh, safe landings. That's that's why we are doing this training for, the, for our militaries. And we plan to have more than 10,000 additional troops to be trained till the end of this year so it sounds like the coalition forces is that a, is that a good way to describe it since we're not talking about nato is there a coalition no yes, i i would suggest that uh, uh coalition of willing countries who supporting Ukraine. okay but at the same time please don't forget that we are not uh, being trained we are sharing our experience because we have a lot of experience for example uh, there are many discussion in nato about interoperability so the, the combinations of different weapon system. And Ukraine right now is the best test ground for this uh, magic word, interoperability. Sure. So you can imagine how uh, it's from one side, it's a nightmare, for example, in terms of logistic uh, to have four different types of artillery in one battalion, for example. In and four different languages. And, and field manuals. You're right. And, yeah, and, and fuel and this kind of stuff. But at the same time, is excellent opportunity to us to test interoperability. And I think that NATO will gain huge lessons learned from the Ukrainian, from the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. So interoperability. Are there other partner 
nations, non-NATO nations uh, fighting in the Ukraine with Ukraine? Uh, we have, uh, since, uh, okay, I don't want, first of all, I don't want to speculate. As I said, I left Ukraine uh, in August 2019, mm-hmm. and I'm coming back uh, in two weeks. Mm-hmm. So I will be back uh, in Ukraine from the beginning of June. I suggest that we can have this kind of conversation when I will be back in Ukraine. That and would I will, be great. Yeah, I will have more information about that. It's about who is fighting, where they're fighting, not disclosing any operational security issues, but I can. I am ready to inform you how things are going on back in Ukraine. What I know that uh, many countries, not NATO members, they are offering training and they are offering humanitarian support. That's it. Training and humanitarian support. Okay, folks, on that note, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but I just want to emphasize something that Colonel Kovalenko just mentioned, and that is he is transferring back to the Ukraine very soon. And when he's there, he'd be happy to do a follow-up, the Elevate Your Leadership podcast, and he'll have eyes on the ground at that time and be able to provide uh, more detailed ground truth or atmospherics as we refer to it in the military. Uh, Stay tuned, and we will be right back. And we are back on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. We are having an incredible discussion with Colonel Gennady Kovalenko of the Ukrainian Air Force. Colonel Kovalenko is serving at NATO ACT uh, in a staff officer capacity, and it's been a fascinating discussion so far. We're really talking about the global chessboard to go back to uh, the book that we referenced earlier. But what else haven't we discussed? What would you like to share with the listeners that you think is important for not only the people of the United States, but the people of the world to know? Yes, uh, I suggest that we haven't discussed the role and and the place of Global South. Global South? South, yes. Okay, please continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, So we haven't discussed Global South which means that uh, if we think if we think that each and every country support Ukraine or um, against Russia on the planet, we are wrong. We have some countries who is abstaining from the voting in the United Nations, and I suggest that our attention and attention from the United States and the global West should be a little bit redirected to the convincing global South countries like India. China, Pakistan, many African countries to join the coalition to support Ukraine. Another thing that we haven't discussed yet, but I think it is it is interesting, is future of Russia. Future of Russia, you know, many people, afraid, many experts even, afraid of uh, Russia to be collapsed. I am not suggest this is the, the only scenario. But at the same time, guys, let's think about 35, 40 years ago, everyone was afraid of collapsing of the Soviet Union because that was a lot of uh, nuclear warheads, you know, and nuclear um, uh, capabilities. And everyone was like, oh, no, no. Even President Bush, the the, the elder, when he visited Ukraine in October 1991, he suggested, he was speaking in our parliament and he suggested to abstain from the independence, to to be in the Soviet Union. Uh, So that was October. In December, we voted for our independence. Uh, and what we have right now, Soviet Union collapsed, three Baltic states in NATO, Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova, democracies, fragile, but democracies. And just think about uh, unthinkable and de- uh, get ready for the uh, any kind of scenarios. If if Russia will collapse, let it be, just get ready for that, you know. And how we can get ready for that? By supporting of the Russian minorities 
and Russian opposition in exile in the different countries. Wow, that's fascinating to even think about. And that's something that I don't think that's something you don't see discussed on the news. Um, I, I would say maybe uh, maybe some of the more international press agencies might be writing about that. But I haven't seen um, I have The Economist, for example, but I haven't seen anything there there has to be writing on that and there has to be theories on that but it's just not something that's uh headline news speaking about uh speaking about global yeah. south uh, countries like in from africa china india pakistan you know uh the middle east uh last issue of foreign affairs full of articles about uh about uh, the global south and about how how west uh, should deal with them in terms of conflict one of them is from david miliband uh, you British uh, British expert and, uh, and former politician. So we talked about global south, and and you listed those countries: Belarus, Belarusia. You know, I visited Belarus uh, during the Clinton administration when uh, that administration was looking to remove nuclear material nuclear material from Belarus and advance peace initiatives across the region. And it appears now that Belarus is allied and, and supporting Russia in many ways, short of, of Belarusian troops crossing the border. Uh, what can you tell us about the status of Belarus? Uh, first of all, do not forget that uh, Belarusian president have been working, have been in power much longer than Mr. Putin. So he put himself at the very beginning of, of 2000 as the senior to Mr. Putin. But right now the roles changed. So right now he is the puppet for, for Mr. Putin, and that it was happened during the history of, of Belarusia. Speaking about Belarusia, let's be uh, honest among ourselves that uh, although uh, Belarusia is not using troops, their troops to invade Ukraine, they, uh, they are offering uh, host national support for the Russian troops. And uh, many aircraft, they are using the airfields in Belarusia in order to bomb and strike Ukrainian territories. So first message is Belarusia is definitely a side of the conflict on the Russian side. Uh, speaking about the perspectives, I think when the war uh, became protracted, uh, Belarusia is not that certain about Russian victory. And uh, last, okay, uh, recent rhetorics of, Be of Belarusian president has been changed as well. So he tries to position himself as the negotiator and uh, his last messages is offering, uh, you know, peace talks between uh, Ukraine and, 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 and Russia. But at the same time, we are pretty much sober that he is fully dependent on the Russian resources. And he's staying uh, as a, let's say, fake uh, Belarusian leader completely depends on the will in the Kremlin. Sure. So I can see that um, that kind of puppet relationship, especially in terms of offering to mediate peace talks. Um, it's a non-starter. That's not going to go anywhere. Are there other former Soviet states that are allied or otherwise uh, appear to be in support of Russia? Uh, uh, there is interesting rhetorics right now in Georgia, especially when they try to Pass yeah a couple of months ago the the Georgian parliament they tried to pass a law uh, copy pasted from the Russian Federation concerning uh, foreign agents. So if you have support from abroad, you must declare your organization as foreign agent uh, agents. 
So that's exactly as I said, copy paste from Russia. But thanks to the Georgian people uh, who are sober and who who are uh, moving to the democracy, uh, they have uh, there were demonstrations, and the, the Georgian parliament changed that law, so they, they just abandoned that. At the same time, we should be critical about uh, uh, the speed of the process uh, of democratization in different uh, republics of the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, uh, yesterday uh, we got a message that many leaders from the former Soviet republics, they will join Mr. Putin for the parade of the Victory Day today. Mm. So, Including guy from Kazakhstan and prime minister of Armenia. So that's rather uh, worried news mm-hmm. for us and bad news for us. At the same time, again, as I said, we are sober that we must win this war in order to protect our independence and sovereignty. That is um, fascinating, interesting, sobering once again. And regarding the future, uh, you've you've referenced it a few times throughout this discussion, but what is the desired outcome? What is, if Mr. Putin decided to agree tomorrow to Ukrainians' proposal, if you will, what would that solution be? Uh, first of all, let me let me be back a little bit and uh, let me say that we will not negotiate with Mr. Putin himself. And that's uh, not only my vision, it's vision of, vision of my president. Sure. Mr. Putin is open this war. He opened the Pandora box and he started invasion in Ukraine, calling, them, calling that special military operations. So he is not negotiable. More than that, he got a warrant from the international court that's for right. the kidnapping of the Ukrainian kids. That's not about the war. It's clear case of kidnapping Ukrainian children. Uh, so what I suggest, uh, the end war is, as was many times reiterated and stressed back in Ukraine, that we got our territories as for 1991. And the negotiation can be with whoever will come after Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin himself is not negotiable. Is there somebody or are there several people who would fit that bill? Are there people who uh, the Ukrainian government have identified as people they would be willing to negotiate with? Uh, to be brutally honest, I, I, I'm not able to, to, to tell the surnames right now. What I know that uh, about 10,000 upper class Russians, they are not happy. Uh, they don't have Dutch cheese, uh, French wine, Scottish whiskey, Spanish jamon. They are not traveling uh, as they used to travel. They have some difficulties with the bank accounts. They have some difficulties with the uh, estate abroad. So those guys, they are not happy. And we are counting on them. I wish I had the crystal ball about who will be next, but I don't. Okay. And and then along those lines, uh, so the aristocracy, if you will, is deprived. The oligarchs are deprived. And the Russian citizens, I would imagine, are also deprived. And, you know, are the sanctions having an effect? And what is the will of the Russian people? Uh, You know, Rob, you mentioned Russian people and and how they're unhappy. No, they're happy. Uh, I can tell you that majority of Russians, they they used to live in extreme poverty. They got accustomed to that. I am I myself a child of the Soviet Union. I can remember time back in the Soviet Union with the rations to the meat. So my mom was allowed to buy half a pound of sausage per week per person. So the majority of people in Russia, they they don't don't think that critically. 
At the same time, you mentioned magic word sanctions. Uh, I suggest that sanctions can be divided into two parts. Sanctions against goods, which is good enough, and sanctions against the uh, Russian energy sector. And Russian energy sector, is the, that was the, the, the most powerful source of the income. So thanks God, United uh, European Union stopped to buy Russian coal and oil last year, and they imposed the limit price for the Russian gas. So as for today, Russian budget is suffering from the shortage of income. Every day, because of the sanctions against economic uh, uh, energy, Russian energy, Russia is losing $180 million per day. They used to have them, now they don't. And they are selling gas and oil to the to India and China with huge discount. Uh, I guess that even they spend more for taking that resources, they, they are selling those resources. Another thing that uh, probably uh, I would like to touch is technological embargoes. So this is uh, in, in combination with the economical sanctions, uh, technological embargoes is the most painful uh, mechanism to suffer Russia because Russia is not able to produce this, you know, uh, microchips and electronics. So what they even passed the law which allowed Russian producers to produce cars without ABCs and without airbags. Wow. They, they don't have that car computers anymore, you know. And my message again, welcome to the Soviet Union. So I suggest for the Western countries to keep the sanctions and technological embargoes. We are sober. It's painful not only for Russia. It's painful for the other countries as well. For example, if Germany is not buying cheap Russian gas, Germany is buying expensive Norwegian gas. And it reflects in the utility bills as well. At the same time, ladies and gentlemen, if we want to live in more stable, more peaceful, and more predictable world in the future, we must do these investments. And that's not charity, it's investments. And of course, the uh, Nord Stream 1 um, is no longer operational and construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, coming from Russia into Europe, uh, all, 100% of that oil is no longer flowing. So regarding the technology, the embargo against technology and the embargo against some of the other things that make the Russian military capable, will this technological embargo has it impacted the military capability or will it impact military it's, capability? It has been already impacting military capabilities. So if you see right now, they are less and less using uh, sophisticated cruise missiles. Uh, they are switching to the drones, cheap drones where they are buying in, in Iran. And can you imagine how humiliating for the Russians, you know, for empire to buy drones from Iran or China or North Korea, you know. So that's that's double-edged sword, you know, that they are buying from the nations they consider not 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 that advanced, you know. Okay. And speaking, if you open the Russian armament program, uh, Russian armament development program till year 2027, if you open that document, uh, you can find that two-thirds of the programs in that document were rescheduled, terminated, or even cancelled because they don't have parts for that. But what I know, even for the, for the civilian aviation, they are starting cannibalizing uh, uh, aircraft in order to maintain uh, their uh, 
uh, planes uh, flying, you know, in Russia. Wow. Fascinating. Colonel H, uh, last question. So Colonel H is is how Colonel Kovalenko, uh, he uh, allows us to address him as Colonel H just to keep it simple for our, our English tongues. Uh, but last question, what do you make of this drone strike on the on the Kremlin? Uh, so first of all, uh, yeah, Colonel H, I love it because, you know, uh, I'm pretty much sure that uh, lives uh, of our listeners is complicated enough without remembering my full name. <laughs> so I'm very good with H. Speaking about the, the, the strikes, whoever did that, he did excellent job. First of all, can you imagine just rhetorically the same strike on the White House and President Biden silent for the week. I can't imagine that. Uh-huh. So, uh, and whoever did that, it was huge investment in the uh, information campaign. So right now, mm-hmm. you can imagine, guys. Uh, so rhetoric was, we will take Kiev for three days. We will invade Poland in a week. And that's the Russian thoughts and Russian rhetorics. Uh, Ukraine, three days. Uh, Poland a week and in two weeks they said they will be washing their military boots in the Atlantic Ocean water so wow. right now what they have they and if I would be ordinary Russian living in Moscow I wouldn't be sleep well Colonel H we're going to end it there uh, but this is part one and I can't thank you enough for uh, coming to the broadcast studio here at iFly Virginia Beach in Virginia Beach Virginia and um, uh, I wish you, your family, and your countrymen the best, and I wish them success. And I, I look forward to following up on part two. Any last thing you would like to share with our listeners? Oh, yes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you so much for supporting my country. Without American support, forget about Ukraine. As simple as that. So you're not only training us, giving us equipment, but you are serving as an exemplary country, as a model to other countries to follow. Let me conclude this conversation, interesting conversation. Rob, thank you for having me yes, here. Yes, sir. Uh, let me conclude with the quotation of my president who was speaking to the Senate in the United States last December. He said to the American audience, ladies and gentlemen, your support and your money is not charity. Ladies and gentlemen, your support and your money is investment. Investment in the future stability peace and democracy, which we, the Ukrainians, have been handling in the most responsive way. Thank you. Fascinating discussion. Colonel, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com. Robert P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I dot com and connect with him on LinkedIn.